There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I am your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist, and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis. Emotional issues can affect you or someone in your life at any time. The intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Atcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Today's topic is entitled Problems of Living. And on today's podcast, I have the pleasure and privilege of interviewing a colleague and friend, Professor Dan Stain. Dan is the professor and chair and head of department of psychiatry at the University of Cape Town and Hruteskir Hospital in Cape Town. He is one of the most extensively published individuals I know, and one of his most recent publications is a book entitled Problems of Living, Perspectives from Philosophy, Psychiatry, and Cognitive Affective Science, published by the Academic Press. Now, in my reading of the book, I see that it really draws very significantly on philosophy, and, and, and to my mind makes the case for specialists in training, certainly, to be taught philosophy, which we are not actually taught, to provide a broader perspective and understanding of human suffering and the human condition. Dan, welcome. Congratulations on the book, and, and, and thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for interviewing me, Christopher. This sounds like a fascinating series of conversations. Great. I'm looking forward to it. You know, I often go to the back of a book and I look at the, the references, and I counted with a number, and I wasn't getting it confused with George Orwell's 1984, but there were 1,984 references, which I think is is amazing. Um, I saw a couple of names that I thought I'd mention, Irving Yalom, Theodore Dalrymple, Roger Scruton, Noam Chomsky, and quite a few others that I, um, that I was familiar with. I didn't see any Viktor Frankl or Marcus Aurelius, but we'll, we'll maybe get to that. I want to start out by just quoting a line from Scott Peck's book, the road less traveled, where he starts out by saying, life is difficult. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, um, I would agree with that. That very much goes to the heart of the book, which is to try to figure out to what extent life is difficult or not difficult. While on the one hand, I agree with the comment, um, I also want to disagree with it. There are parts of life that are not that difficult. And I think it's struggling or finding a balance that really is a bit core of the book. It's partly about finding a balance about life in general, but I think because your series is about psychiatry, yes. it's also about finding balance as we think about psychiatry. Well, I think that's that's very important. And I think, you know, balance is such a key word. There's been a lot of discussion in, in, in recent times about coping, uh, mental health, resilience, and I think that balance is a key word. I, certainly in my clinical practice, balance is a key word in terms of how one actually should be leading one's life in order to lead probably the most functional life that one could. But obviously the big question for me is, is, is what motivated you to write the book? Uh, so a range of different things that motivated me. I mean, one is struggling with finding balance in psychiatry, as we've talked about. Another is finding balance as one thinks about life in general. And then, you know, you talked about the different references, sort of, yes. so, so being engaged in a conversation with people um, about these issues and wanting to add my two cents. The question of, you know, whether one regards life as difficult or not is, is really key in a way, because I think one of the things that happens in, in the literature, particularly self-help literature, 
is this sort of a focus on seeing the good side of things. Right. And that can be crucially important. On the other hand, one wants to avoid, you know, use this word panglossian, you know, kind of an overly optimistic, overly breezy, um, overly superficial approach to either the deep problems of life or the, or the problems that we deal with in psychiatry and acknowledge sort of the real um, difficulties that people have with mental disorders, mm. uh, the real suffering uh, that life brings. And so, you know, how to be optimistic and hopeful, but without necessarily being superficially panglossian uh, is, is a key issue for me. So I think something very important is that not all struggle inevitably leads to a mental disorder or, you know, culminates in mental illness. And I think that's that's important to understand that because one is struggling doesn't necessarily mean that one is suffering from a diagnosable condition. How would you respond to that? Absolutely. And that's one of the key tensions in psychiatry and in the criticism of psychiatry, that uh, on the one hand, as clinicians, we want to provide ways of helping people. But on the other hand, we're often criticized for medicalizing the problems of life. Um, medicalizing suffering. And in fact, the title of this particular book is a play on various problems in the... Thomas says, correct, yes. Yeah, he's well known for his work on the myth of mental illness. So, so he used that phrase to kind of emphasize problems in living, to kind of emphasize that, um, you know, just because you're suffering doesn't mean you have a mental disorder. I think that he might have gone too far with some of his assertions. Mm. So the book, you know, doesn't use his term, but changes terminology. Also partly because in philosophy, there is quite a lot of discussion about hard problems or problems in general. Uh, and so, so there's a little bit of a play on that, but uh, trying to sort of have a decent response to critics of psychiatry. Yes. Uh, it's very much part of my concern. Because I think that when you're talking about earlier, you mentioned balance in psychiatry. Would that be what you were talking about? Yes. I think this is one of uh, the important aspects of balance in psychiatry is trying to find one that achieves balance between appropriate diagnosis versus inappropriate medicalization of suffering of life. But there are a whole range of other balances that we need to get yes. in psychiatry as well. And so the book deals with some of those as well. Um, one that comes to mind is sort of a balance between understanding brains versus understanding people's lived reality, their subjective experience of life. Right. Um, so we want to avoid, you know, what you could call neuroreductionism, saying that everything is the fault of the brain. But you also want to avoid culturalism, saying that everything is a result of the society we find ourselves in. So, yeah, I think achieving balance between different explanations and different approaches is also key in psychiatry. So I think that, you know, as I would understand what you're saying and as I would understand our discipline from my own perspective, it's a very nuanced situation where you're having to not take absolute positions in terms of causation or in terms of explanation, but one is marrying different aspects of the whole being. Would that be, would that be along the way towards the kind of balance that you are talking about, where you're taking all things into consideration, which I suppose in a way speaks to psychiatry's ethos, if you could call it that, of the biopsychosocial approach, not just to understanding, but also in terms of treating and, and, and intervening. Yes, absolutely. So psychiatry has been accused on the one hand of being uh, brainless and on the other hand of being mindless. Uh, 
And you want to avoid both of those extremes and be thinking about the brain, thinking about the mind, thinking about society. And as you say, uh, therefore, a sort of biopsychosocial approach. Now, the biopsychosocial approach has itself been criticized, though, yes. uh, for being overly vague and um, for being all things to all people, which I think is, is, is not an entirely unfair criticism. So you want to sort of also get into some of the meat of things uh, yes. rather than just sort of gloss over with the sort of very vague biopsychosocial term. I suppose it does provide a framework, but what we're saying is that it's not necessarily, once again, an absolute, and that doesn't necessarily provide all the answers for all of the issues within the discipline, but it does provide some kind of a framework, and I think it's a framework which does separate us from all of the other medical disciplines. Yeah, so, <laughs> again, you can argue this both ways, you know, yes. you can say very much that psychiatry is part of medicine, or very much that psychiatry is different from the rest of medicine, and there's probably a bit of truth to both of those things. Um, I think one has to be careful of saying we're too different because that might lead to this idea that we're, you know, for example, our diagnoses are less reliable than those in other branches of medicine. That's not true. Uh, It might lead to the supposition that our interventions are less effective than those in other areas of medicine, and and that's not true. But at the same time, uh, there are some differences, and we have to look at those and understand them. Well, I think that in terms of that difference, I would see psychiatry as more in the vanguard of showing other disciplines how we should actually be approaching patient care in a holistic way that incorporates different aspects of their being as opposed to reducing them to uh, a tick box, symptom, signs, diagnosis, algorithmic treatment uh, approach. And I I suppose in, in, in that way, I would not be too upset if psychiatry was seen as different, not as exclusive though, and not as divorced from medicine, but maybe giving general medicine an indication of maybe a way to approach patient care that might be better for the patient. Yeah, so, you know, um, being appropriately proud is, again, a matter of balance. We're emphasizing this issue a lot in our discussion. Uh, I think one of the things I'm concerned about is inappropriate hubris, you know, being overly yes. um, proud of what one's done, which, which unfortunately psychiatry has done at times. Uh, we're sometimes overly optimistic about the future, I think, overly promising what we can achieve. So I think we need to be really cautious about that. And I think we also want to um, be careful not to denigrate the rest of medicine. Yes. Uh, which sometimes has noticed things uh, before we have and particularly made conclusions about how important the bio, the psycho and the social are long before psychiatry has got there. So, yeah, again, a matter of balance perhaps. I can't disagree with you there. And I, I think that humility in terms of what you can realistically offer patients is critical. And I think it just comes down to clinical honesty. Because the truth of the matter is we don't have perfect solutions for complex problems and complex diagnoses or conditions. And certainly in my own clinical practice, I'm always very, very cautious in terms of how we move forward. And, and for me, it's really about can I reduce symptoms, 
distress and improve functioning without promising that I'm going to cure you because I don't think that that's something we should be striving for as a departure point um, because I'm not sure that it's something that we can deliver. So I think that I, I would have to agree with you. There has to be a certain humility. And, of course, psychiatry is not saying that it's got the final answer because I don't believe it has. But certainly what I'm really speaking about is that I think we have a, a framework that is more holistic and I think ultimately is not a bad one for other medical disciplines to consider, but not that we regard ourselves as better than them in that respect, maybe just giving some indication of how we do things and something for them to potentially think about. We'll move on from that because I just wanted to establish who's your book intended for? Because I think that the audience is very important when you obviously set out to write a book, you probably have in mind an audience that you would be wanting to appeal to and to what extent you pitch the book accordingly. So, so what was your thinking when you, when you started out to write the book? And I've got another follow up question to that, which is how long did it take you to write this book? Because this is not a straightforward, easy undertaking. So the first question really is who was the book intended for? So I think there are actually different audiences for the book and, and there's actually two books in there. There's a book in the book, but there's also a book in the footnote. Right. And so the the main book, I suppose, is for a general, perhaps general academic reader. So it's not a popular book by any stretch of the imagination. And yeah, I think I try to write in a way that a, a, a general reader will, will be able to understand. But then I'm also interested in people with specific interests, let's say in philosophy, or let's say in psychiatry, or let's say in neuroscience. And so in the footnotes, I will then go into more details in, in each of those areas, um, appealing, trying to appeal to somewhat more specialized audiences or trying to give indications uh, for further thinking to people that might be interested in more specialized areas. Uh, in terms of how long it took me, I mean, this is a follow-up of a book that I did about 10 years ago. So in some ways, um, it's about 10 years, but in other ways, I did it quite quickly over the last year. Okay, so you had a lot of preparation in a sense, and then I suppose once you've got a clear focus and you've got the prep that's done, you can move fairly quickly in terms of the writing process because you've got that clarity in your mind. Would that be reasonable? Yeah, that's not unreasonable. Yeah. Okay. Just something struck me as you were talking, and it wasn't in relation to the opening comment that I made about whether in fact psychiatrists and certainly psychiatrists in training should have more of a grounding in philosophy because certainly in the reading of your book and the references which cover a broad range of philosophical thought, it did strike me that the early philosophers, I call them early, but there were more recent ones as well. I mean, philosophy has a lot to offer in terms of understanding the human condition. And so the comment that I made initially was – why do we not teach philosophy or why is there not a course in philosophy specifically aimed at specialists in training in the discipline of psychiatry? What would you, how would you respond to that? I've always been interested in, in, in this area and I think many psychiatrists are. I think many psychiatrists are actually quite interested in conceptual things. Those who are, are less interested in conceptual aspects of health and medicine might end up in other branches of medicine. Potentially, that's a hypothesis for you. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I haven't always felt entirely competent in, in philosophy. So quite, quite recently, spurred by this book and also spurred by a, a couple of articles from a young philosopher psychiatrist 
in the States about a curriculum for philosophy psychiatry for uh, registrars. We, we've actually started a, a short uh, seminar for our psychiatry registrars in, in philosophy, uh, and we'll see how it goes. I think that sounds fantastic because, you know, very often when one feels a little bit lost and you turn to philosophy and certain other philosophers, you find, to your surprise, if you have not been reading that kind of literature before, answers. And you find things said which are so profound and you kind of wonder to yourself, okay, they didn't necessarily have the benefit of medical technology and medical science as we do, but they had some profound insight into the human condition. So certainly I'm delighted to hear that there is a course that you're starting to offer, and I think it's going to enrich the young psychiatrists who come through. Um, there are big questions that you ask in the book, and I'm just going to list them for the listener's uh, understanding. So there's pain and suffering, happiness, morality, truth, meaning, reason versus emotion. How did you decide on what the big questions were and were there any that you potentially left out that you might have wanted to add in? Because I can think of a few, but let's just focus on, on, on the ones that you chose. Sure. Um, mm. I, I know it's a, t- <laughs> it's a tough question, I know. <laughs> So I'm, yes, I'm really yes. pushing you against the wall here and saying, come on, Dan, give me an answer. I suppose that's what good interviewers do, Christopher. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, I just needed a framework, and yeah. I think those cover some of the big areas of philosophy. That's metaphysics, epistemology, ethics. There's one that can affect with psychiatry. So, um, you know, from questions of metaphysics, what is a disease? Um Point of epistemology, how do we know anything about psychiatry from point of view of ethics and what should we be doing right. in psychiatry? So it gives me sort of a link between, you know, big questions that I was asking, uh, as well as practical issues that come up in day to day clinical work. So I think that's sort of my, my brief answer. I'd be interested in what, what I left out. Christopher. I'll get to that. <laughs> I'll get to that. But I wanted to touch on. The one thing that really struck me, and it's on page 120 in your book, and I'm not expecting you to have the book in front of you, but I know it because I specifically referenced it for myself, is this issue of pain. And I found it fascinating that there is data within the context of social exclusion, where somebody is basically excluded from a a social setting, that the neurocircuitry in the brain that is activated, so to speak, is the same for those suffering the emotional pain of social exclusion versus someone who is actually suffering physical pain. And so in a sense, what we're saying is there is actually a biological basis for emotional pain, and it's not this nebulous, vague concept, I'm in pain, which can't be seen because there's no obvious injury, but the emotional pain is a real biological phenomenon. And I found that fascinating because I've never really thought about it. And when I came across it, I thought, I've got to ask Dan about this because it's kind of just sort of snuck into page 120 and boom, I think it's so profound. What would you say? Yeah, no, thank you for picking up on that, Christopher. I mean, I think it, it is a key point. I mean, it's a, it's a finding uh, that came out of a study at, at Harvard, but it speaks to a whole range of, of deep uh, issues. The first kind of issue is how do we think? How does, how does the brain-mind work? You know, Jean Piaget, the developmental psychologist and philosopher, you know, made huge progress by emphasizing how abstract ideas are, are very based in concrete 
mechanisms mm-hmm. in, in the brain and in the mind. And others in philosophy have further emphasized those. There are a couple of people I can mention. You know, one is, is John Dewey, who's um, a, a famous pragmatist uh, in the States and, and very interested actually also in developmental psychology, actually. Mm. And so his framework is one in which knowledge is about engaging with the world. So it's, it's sort of a very concrete way of talking about how we gain abstract knowledge. Right. George Lockup is another person who I might mention. He's a cognitive scientist, um, so he's, his discipline is linguistics, but he's made extensive contributions to philosophy and, and is very resonant with Dewey. And his, his sort of central focus is how we are, are very embodied. So the you know, brain is not sort of this abstract soul thing out there. Yes. The brain is very much in the body. Uh, how we think is very much about moving our body in the world. Uh, we're not really computers that sort of have this kind of software going on. How we think about the world is by moving in the world and engaging in the world. And so this thing about pain being very physical and in the body, and that including not just you know pain from heat, but also pain from social exclusion, pain yes. from the suffering of life is also in our body and, and uses the same circuitry. It's, it's also very consistent with ideas in evolution, right? So the way evolution works, it doesn't sort of develop whole new parts of the brain uh, for dealing with sort of abstractions. It, it, it tinkers with what it already has. So if there's circuitry for physical pain, uh, then that same circuitry will be used for uh, mental pain. Right. And so, so the example I think I think you've you've chosen a good example for sort of bringing together issues in philosophy, and the, 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 those are about you know how how the, how the mind works and and what knowledge is. Uh, for bringing to get those together with issues in psychology um, and in neuroscience. Right. So I think this is very important because you know certainly as a discipline, psychiatry is actually far more integrated than people necessarily fully appreciate. So there were some issues, big questions that I have that were not specifically in the book, or maybe they were and I missed them. But I was thinking, what about death and needing to reconcile oneself with the inevitable consequence of life? Is that not itself a problem of living, how we conceptualize and how we think about death? Yeah, um, so I think that's a very good point. It is in the book. It's probably in a footnote, though, so you might have to read your footnote. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so what, one of the things I, I try to do in the book is to bring in a lot of South Africans. Um, right. You know, this is where we live. There's a, a well-known local philosopher. His name is Anton von Nickerk. He's um, okay. His works in applied philosophy at Stellenbosch University. Right. And he, he has written extensively about death and about how death it sort of helps helps one think through the meaning of life. Right. Um, he, he's not he's not the first necessarily to do this, but he does it in a in a in a very helpful way. And so so I draw on him quite a bit. I cite some of his work. Yes, I had noticed make, that actually. That, 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 yeah. yeah. So I mean, reconciliation with death, I think, does make a difference in terms of how you appreciate life, how you uh, embrace life. 
and how you accept life as being something that you should literally squeeze for every ounce of juice that you can get out of it because there is an inevitability about what is going to to happen to us. Um, I wanted to come back to something that sort of we touched on very briefly or was mentioned, this issue of self-help. Now, I know that you've got a fascination with self-help books based on reading this book of yours. And I suppose at, at, at first reading, I would say, well, this is not necessarily a self-help book, but maybe it is just at a different level. How would you, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I think that's a very generous and insightful comment uh, because it, <laughs> it, 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 it's generous because I think I am after that. And yet, I, I, because I don't write in a popular way, I entirely miss it. Um, but then, as you said, it, it, it might be at a higher level. I use the drawing on the work of others, use the phrase, um, a negative approach to self-help or a negative approach to uh, the negative pathway to happiness. Right. And, and the issue there goes back to how you opened. You opened uh, with a comment that life is full of suffering. Yes. Uh, because a lot, a lot of self-help books, and I think um, this is an obvious critique that many have made, um, are about emphasizing how great life is. There's, you know, there are a number of, of very famous uh, South Africans that have, have made a counterpoint of that. Um, uh, David Bennett, a professor of philosophy at the University of Cape Town, comes to mind. He's well known for being an anti-natalist, um, for arguing that it's better not to have been born. I, I, I don't want to go that far, sure. but I want to um, acknowledge sort of the points that he, he makes and, and, and steer away from um, blithe self-helpness. Right. Um, so it turns out that, um, you know, one of, and, I, and I cite this in the book, one of the first um, self-help people was writing around the time of Dickens. Um, mm-hmm. his, name, his name was Smiley, if I remember right. Correct. And he was, yes, he outlawed uh, again, if I remember correctly, you know, he was uh, as well known, if not better. Uh, and he was all about, um, you know, you need to be a persevere, you need to have grit, you need to have determination. Uh, and, and in many ways, the forerunner uh, then of contemporary work in positive psychology um, and books with those sorts of titles. Okay. So what you're saying is the self-help industry in terms of literature, goes back very, very, very far. Yeah, self-help industry does go back a long way, probably, you know, to, to antiquity, in fact, because it's an important thing. But but Smiley, perhaps, is as closest to our contemporary right. sort of uh, stuff that you see in, in a lot of positive psychology. So, so Dickens kind of parodies him in his novels, in a way, arguing you know, that we be, need to be careful of that kind of approach that can be overly overly optimistic and, and miss crucial things. And so uh, I'm with Dickens on this one. <laughs> I, and, like, I like Dickens. I've got to tell you, I've just recently reread A Tale of Two Cities, and I just thought it was wow. so profound. <laughs> I thought it was so profound. It actually took me into a reading of the French Revolution, which I'd never really read before. Dan... I'm going to have to bring our conversation to an end. It's been fantastic speaking to you. But I just want to say something and quote from your book, which I found quite profound, where it is said that life is a sexually transmitted disease. Now, for some of the philosophers, life is about pain, and certainly Camus felt that the consideration of suicide was the single most important question. Others have focused on the pleasures of life. 
Frankel sometimes asked his patients who suffered from a range of torments, why do you not commit suicide? Finding reasons to live. I'd like to believe that whatever the problems of living, there are more than enough reasons to continue to do so. And I'm going to close out with a quote from Marcus Aurelius, which I find quite profound. Our life is what our thoughts make it. Dan, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. I wish we could carry on talking and maybe we will have another opportunity in the months ahead to reconnect. But thank you for joining us. Thank you, Christopher. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Take care. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of BRAVE.